Я дякую всім вам за міцність, я дякую кожному і кожній, хто зараз в бою, на бойових постах, у бойових завданнях. Працюємо, аби у вас було більше зброї, більше потужної та ефективної зброї, нашої української зброї. І це буде. Слава вам, воїни! Слава Україні! Following Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to the United States, and as Ukraine continues to make incremental gains in its counteroffensive in the East, reports are surfacing that Washington is finally ready to provide Kyiv with the long-range Attackums missile systems it has been seeking. With U.S.-made Abrams tanks arriving in Ukraine this week and with Kyiv continuing to hit deep behind Russian lines, most recently with a strike on the Black Sea Fleet headquarters, some are hopeful that a battlefield breakthrough could come soon. Winter coming, there are also fears that the front line could deadlock and political sport in the West could dry up. So where do things stand as Russia's war on Ukraine enters its 19th month? We'll be discussing that as well as how Azerbaijan's capture and Russia's inability or unwillingness to defend Armenia have changed the security equation in the South Caucasus with our two awesome guests. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of proxy at McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published and must-read book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Welcome back to The Vertical, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. To have you. And joining us from across the ocean in the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn is the one and only James Sher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia-Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Welcome back to The Vertical, James. A pleasure, Brian. Great to have you. So the first Abrams tanks have arrived. The attackums are reportedly coming soon. The F-16s are in the pipeline as Ukraine pilots, Ukrainian pilots train up. Ukraine continues to strike deep inside Crimea, and the counteroffensive in the east appears to be making at least incremental gains. Ukrainian forces may not get to Melitopol, as many had hoped, but they may just get to Tokmak, which would be a major achievement. And we know the Kremlin is worried because the Kremlin is denying that it is worried. Kremlin, uh, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov, who lies for a living, said the following this week. There is no panacea and no one type of weapon can change the balance of power on the battlefield. James, where are we in this war? Uh, I would advise against being too hopeful. And I think certain we need to remind ourselves of certain fundamentals, which, of course, are not accepted by everyone. I think it would be perilous uh, to overlook uh, just how much, how, just how far Putin has raised the stakes in this war. Every strategic priority um, he, the state leadership of Russia, have invested in for 20 years, uh, the relationship with Germany, 
energy supremacy in Europe, the diminution of NATO, uh, the weakening of the transatlantic alliance, all these things have been sacrificed for the sake of winning the war in Ukraine. I would go so far as to say that if it were necessary to win the war, Putin would be willing to kill one million Ukrainians. He doesn't do that for two reasons, at least. First, because I th he believes he will, I think he still believes he will win the war without uh, taking such extreme measures. And secondly, because he believes he will be stopped if he attempts to do that. But if he didn't believe he would be stopped, and if he had no other recourse, I think he would be willing to do that. There would be no constraint. Are you talking about weapons of mass destruction here, or when you say one million Ukrainians? Yes, it would have to be. Yep. Uh, I think he would do anything that he felt would succeed, and we need to understand this. He has raised the stakes. The Russians say he's gone to the bank. He has put everything on this. Uh, secondly, I think he has staked uh, an enormous amount, uh, an inordinate amount, on the outcome of the U.S. elections. Uh, enormous resources are being invested in this, which probably cannot be sustained forever. The salaries of mobilized Russian soldiers have been raised to $2,000 a month. Of contract soldiers... $8,000 a month. These are huge sums of money for people from the uh, in the interior of Russia. This is a lot of money. Uh, they have more or less doubled defense industrial production. Um, that's an enormous um, investment. And I don't think it can go on forever. Um, but it certainly can go on through November 2024. And I would suspect beyond that. Here is the key issue. Supposing Putin loses his bet on the election. Which is so probably likely. Well, supposing either President Biden or someone emerges with a policy similar to President Biden and wins the election. Then we are going to be at an inflection point. And I think we should do some thinking about it. It might be in such an instance that Putin will look for an exit, but it might also uh, mean that he will start to seriously consider some very dark scenarios, some of the madmen scenarios that even today uh, worry people in Washington. So we need to consider we need to consider all of that. Well, that is a very dark picture to get us started this week, James. I wanted to actually make a, a, a drill into a couple of these things. I mean, Putin's Putin's raised the stakes. What you're basically saying there is that he has escalation dominance, and that's never going to change. Um, that that's that that's the assumption here, and that is the strategic advantage that Putin always had. That he is going, he is at the end of the day probably willing to escalate farther than we do. I, for one, have been very, very skeptical of the fears of this going nuclear. I, I, I felt that was largely a psyop, um, largely a reflexive control operation. Although uh, I don't rule out that you could be correct about this. 
Um, staking a lot on the outcome of any U.S. election is a fool's errand. Uh, U.S. elections are coin flips, basically. Right. Um, U.S. elections are coin flips. I expect this election, just like the last one, to come down to, you know, between, you know, in in the tens of thousands of votes across five swing states. Um, and actually, if you put a gun to my head and said, make a prediction, I would say that President Biden wins another close one. That's what that's what I'm, I, I, I think is the more likely outcome. But the other outcome is certainly not out of the question um, is is uh, is certainly possible. But staking a lot on that is um, is a pretty damn gamble it's like putting your entire retirement account on black in las vegas right three three quick points before um jeff weighs in with uh, uh, at least an equal amount of skepticism to yours i don't think putin has escalation dominance i think that we have given him escalation dominance or at least the uh, illusion of it um, if we were willing to raise the stakes ourselves, we, if we were willing to use the demonstrate a willingness to use the power we have, I don't think he would have this. I agree with you that the nuclear option and the feasibility of nuclear use has been greatly overstated. Um, but I think one needs to understand the frame of mind of the people who today uh, rule Russia and um, understand they're operating to a very different calculus from ours. Um, so that that's just two points in, in, in response to in response to yours. Jeff, I want to get you to weigh in on this. Um, and also, I mean, James's analysis seems to assume that any hoped for breakthrough by Ukraine, um, before the winter sets in is gone, right? We don't expect them to get to Melitopol to split Russian forces like we, like many had thought was going to happen earlier in the summer. Um, they may get to Tokmak. I don't think they're going to get to Melitopol, although the Ukrainians have surprised us in the past. Um, they're hitting deep behind Russian lines. And a lot of military strategists saying this is really messing with Russia's logistics and could lead to a breakthrough on the front line. Now, I'm not a military analyst. I, I leave that to our, our mutual friend, Michael Kaufman, to, to assess. But I, how do you, are, do you share Jane, what appears to be James's pessimism that the hoped-for breakthrough this uh, summer and autumn are not going to happen? And then that moves us into the series of very dark assumptions that James kind of put before us. Yeah. Again, I preface this by saying that though I work for the Department of Defense, I don't consider myself a military analyst either. Um, but I do think that the progress of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, significant though it's been, has so far not been at the scale or the speed that would allow them to achieve a comprehensive breakthrough before the change of the seasons makes further offensive operations difficult. They could uh, achieve surprise. That certainly has happened on a number of occasions in the past. Um, I think the Russians have learned tactically and operationally uh, and have done uh, their defensive operations better uh, than they did uh, during 2022 when the Ukrainians achieved the surprise breakthrough around Kharkiv, for instance. Um, but I think at the same time that even if there are further substantial battlefield gains by the Ukrainians, that may not be enough to end the war. 
even if Russia is cut off uh, in various places from, you know, west of Melitopol or wherever you're, the target of your offensive on the coast is, that may not be sufficient for the Kremlin to decide that they've had enough. Um, there is preparation for another wave of, of mobilization. I think there is a recognition that offensive operations are going to crawl to a halt uh, during the winter season and the further preparations can be made on both sides during that halt. Um, and I share with James the belief that uh, I think the Kremlin is ultimately calculating that it can hold on on the battlefield, uh, whatever that looks like, long enough to get to the fall of 2024 when the political calendar really uh, right. kicks in. And that if that uh, is the case, then you know whether or not Tokmak falls, whether or not Melitopol falls, uh, in some ways is secondary. Uh, because all the Kremlin has to do at this point is extend the conflict for another year, roughly, uh, without either the battlefield or the home front uh, cracking. Um, and then hope like hell uh, that some of the political scenarios that we've been discussing happen uh, in the United States and potentially in, in other countries as well. And you're right that it is uh, analogous to placing your life savings on black uh, in Atlantic City, but black comes up 50% of the time. So that's not a an entirely uh, impossible wager to win. No, it's 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 not possible, but it's a very very high risk wager for something that's again basically a coin flip. The other thing I'm wondering, and I'd like to kind of both of you to weigh into this, is like the Russian economy. Right, interest rates are soaring, inflation is soaring, the ruble is plunging. Um, can I mean, if indeed the 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 focal point, the inflection point, is going to be the U.S. election in November of 2024. Can Russia even get there, given where the economy is? I mean, I'm not sure this economy can sustain this for another year. I, I, James, what do you think? Oh, I think they can certainly get, I certainly think they can sustain it for another year and longer than that. And, you know, don't forget that uh, if we go back to the whole record of dire predictions about what Russia can afford and what Russia can do, right? I, I think a lot of people would be deeply embarrassed. Uh, yeah, present company now, look, included. I, I think all three of us can map out um, in a very reasoned and plausible and realistic way more hopeful scenarios. What I am saying is that we, for the sake of prudence and realism, need to give at least equal weight to less hopeful scenarios. And I add one thing to it. Even if Biden wins the election, there are there are political realities in the United States and in some other Western countries as well that I think is going to make that will make it more difficult for Ukraine to be supported with the same intensity that it it, it has been up till now. It's not a certainty, but it's just a worrying. It is a worrying possibility, and add one thing to it. Uh, if this war ends with anything short of a conclusive Russian defeat, if Russia is, if we end up in some kind of muddled negotiation, which it certainly will be, and the Russians end up holding 
uh, Ukrainian territory, uh, it's going to make it very difficult politically and economically for the West to sustain Ukraine over the long term. Private enterprise is not going to weigh in in any significant way to rebuilding Ukraine unless the security problem is solved, uh, unless they feel secure in doing it. And this greatly raises the stakes for us. So I think a draw as um, an end to this war will not be a draw, certainly not as Russia sees it. The war will just continue in a different sphere and in a different way, and other dimensions will become more important. So all of this can, in my view, be turned around, but it requires... um, it requires a different momentum. It requires um, a. It requires the West to, and particularly the United States, to raise its game well beyond uh, what it is now willing to entertain. And that would entail what? Because uh, Jeff, I know Jeff wants to jump in, but it. it, it I'm not sure if, if we indeed are sending the attackums as. News reports have suggested. If yeah. indeed we know the F-16s are in the... What else can we send? But, but Ever- it, you know, it, it, it's not even... Um, there are no silver bullets for the weapon systems. We're sending a few attackers. The problem is that the steps we, we took in 2022 should have been taken in 2021 during the mobilization crisis. 2014, in my opinion. We have taken in 2023 should have been taken last year. We should be sending everything we possibly can. Um, and that, and uh, we should be making clear what we have not been clear about, that our goal is the defeat of Russia. Uh, how many NATO allies have actually spoken openly about defeating Russia? How many of them have endorsed Zelensky's definition of victory, the core of which is the removal of Russian forces from all of its territory. These are very fundamental issues, and we have ducked them. We have we have done we have done the right thing at half measures at the last possible moment. That is simply not adequate. Amongst other things, it has had uh, um, progressively. Um, it had deep, deep, and progressively worse effects on morale inside Ukraine and on Zelensky personally. I have no doubt about that. Yeah, no, that is that is that is visible when you when 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 you speak to Ukrainians. There's a lot of concern about this, Jeff. I know you're ready to jump in with something there. Yeah, just a a couple of thoughts. One, I think I agree with James about the need to have provided more to the Ukrainians on a faster timetable. I think there's another issue here, which is how we define what the war is about and what the stakes of the war are. Because you're seeing this in the American domestic political debates already, where uh, the momentum for continuing support or escalating support is beginning to slow down. Um, This is not just a talking point that's associated with fringe figures uh, on the far right and the far left in the U.S. anymore. We had a 
Republican presidential debate last night where there was a disagreement uh, among, I guess, what passes for mainstream candidates about uh, the appropriateness of what the U.S. is doing, the extent of support for Ukraine. Um, I think because we have gotten into the habit of framing this as a war in a uh, faraway place about which we know nothing, as Neville Chamberlain uh, described Czechoslovakia, that um, we can have these debates in our own internal political environments that are uh, abstracted from day-to-day -day concerns of ordinary Americans or Brits or French or whomever. Even uh, in Poland, uh, recently there was the tension between Poland and Ukraine over uh, grain exports and right. partially in response that I think for some other reasons as well, the Polish government announced that they were halting deliveries of weapons to Ukraine. And the Polish government, of course, didn't argue that they were doing this because they were piqued at the Ukrainians about grain exports. But they argued that the margin of security that they had had been exhausted, that they didn't have sufficient weapons in their arsenal. Uh, this is an argument that you get from the United States, too. We can't send more attackums to the Ukrainians because we need to keep them for other uses. Um, and so I think what the psychological dimension of this is, is that we don't see this struggle, arguably even Poland, doesn't see the struggle as having these kind of existential stakes. Um, and I think in some ways it does uh, because of the potential for Russian escalation, but also because of what Russian victory would mean about the nature of the European security order, about the nature of the international rules that we're going to be governed by uh, over the rest of the 21st century. But everybody is still holding back because they're worried about other problems, other contingencies. You know, Poland is, in effect, fighting for its own security in Ukraine. And if yeah. Ukraine loses, Poland loses, too. Yes. So the idea that Poland should hold back elements of its own arsenal that it could transfer to Ukraine because it's worried about maybe having to use them itself, I understand that psychologically, but I think strategically it doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Um, and this is the, the same argument that you're getting in the United States where you know you have opposition to, to the Biden administration's approach, arguing that the stakes of this war aren't that high, where there are other things that the U.S. needs to hold back its capabilities for. And we can, of course, argue about the relative salience of Russia and China and Ukraine and Taiwan. But the, the larger argument that we have to hold something back because of these other possibilities suggests that the stakes that Ukraine is fighting for are limited in a way to Ukraine and don't spill over to things that may matter more to the median voter in the United States. So you're saying there's basically a capacity issue in the West, actually. It's not a, it's a, not a matter of will, it's a matter of capacity. But I'm saying it is a matter. Well, it's both, but it is a matter of will in the sense that we could provide more. But because we haven't made the psychological leap to argue that uh -huh. we have an existential interest in doing this, we're preventing ourselves from doing so. James? I would just quibble with Jeff over Poland. The decision over weapons supplies was made before this spat that Zelensky um, rashly started and that Poland even more rashly responded to, um, that there is a major difference in Europe. And I think for, for the Baltic states, for Poland as well, it is an existential conflict. And we see this as our war. In much of the rest of Europe, and I think 
in parts of the United States, uh, supportive, parts of the United States even supportive of Ukraine, it is still seen largely as a regional conflict with worrying broader implications. This is a this is a major this is a major difference in this just this whole uh, understanding of the war, understanding of the adversary, the understanding of how all the pieces fit together. Um, and if you you know you sit you sit here in Estonia and you talk to others who come through, you can feel it. These are very significant um, differences. Now, uh, has the United States asked Raytheon to ramp up production of Attackums? My understanding is they haven't. If you understood what this was all about early on, uh, you would have been putting together very early on a defense industrial strategy which we haven't had. The issue is not do the difference that attackums will make or F-16s will make. It is an overall issue of strategy, and it has to be based on an understanding that for Russia, Ukraine is the center of gravity of what the Russians see as a total but hybrid war with the West uh to change um to um change the system of western hegemony and western dominance in international affairs uh this is this is what is really driving russia it is what is really driving china as well these are uh these are global issues by definition and we haven't been very good at seeing the scale and the importance of all of this. And if we had, there would have been from the beginning a holistic and strategic approach, and it's that which I perceive has been lacking. Jeff, it sounds to me like, I agree with James, um, we seem to have a messaging problem on our side of the Atlantic. And this goes back to your remarks earlier about that we haven't made the leap into what kind of conflict this is. It's not a peripheral regional conflict. This is the central struggle in global politics right now. Yeah. Can we can, can our messaging be better? I mean, and, and when I say messaging, not messaging coming out of the administration, but messaging coming from folks like us who do try to influence uh, policy on this. Mm -hmm. It is. Well, so the, the, let me backtrack just a second, because I do think that, and I know, James, you're sitting in Europe right now, but I do think that this is, that there is a transatlantic divide on this issue, but it may not be as stark as I think you're making it out to be, because Poland takes this very seriously. But if Poland did truly see this as an existential crisis, the decision on weapons supplies to Ukraine that the Polish government took, I don't think would have been taken. Um, now, Poland, I think, sees an existential threat from Russia and is boosting its own defense spending uh, over time in order to cope with that threat. Um, but I, I still think that the view of the war that is happening right now is one that is, this is a serious threat, but it is one that 
has to be managed amid among all of the other challenges that, that Poland faces. We're not in 1939 territory yet, even in Poland. And that may be a good thing, but it's, I think that's the reality of, of where we are. On this questioning, on this question of messaging, um, I think that the message has been a little bit muddled uh, coming from the administration and also from the commentariat. Um, and could the commentariat do a better job? That's a very hard question to answer because I don't think that there is a single commentariat. I think there are, right. uh, I, I think like a lot of things, this issue has now been subsumed amid our domestic political divides. Um, and on top of that, I think there's a, a larger challenge here, which is that we're now 80 years on from the Second World War. I think the idea of war for those kind of stakes is not something that intellectually, conceptually, uh, a lot of people in the West can wrap their heads around mm. um, because it's not something that's part of their lived historical experience. In some of my darker moments, um, I think that we're, as a species, kind of condemned to have these tragic systemic wars maybe every century or so, um, in part because we keep forgetting the lessons of the last time they happened mm. because all the people who lived through it eventually die off and that knowledge doesn't transfer across generations. Um, obviously, we're not there yet, but I worry that we're going down that slippery slope in part because we don't have the kind of political or intellectual seriousness about the world that we live in because it's outside of our, our lived experience. And then we can talk about the nature of our domestic political debates in the United States, the kind of things that people are arguing about that are, in a lot of ways, incredibly frivolous relative to the stakes of some of the things that are happening in places like Ukraine. James, did you, you seem like you're... No, no. Um, I hope Jeff has brighter moments as well. I wish I had brighter moments. <laughs> but uh, just introduce one other point, but it's not, but, but it's very much related. Uh, very astute uh, German politician uh, said uh, recently, uh, over dinner in Berlin. Um, in Germany, there has been, of course, they talk about Zeitenwende. There has been a paradigm change, but it's only been half a paradigm change. Mm -hmm. On the one hand now, uh, and this would have been incomprehensible before, uh, the majority of people who matter, of course, not everybody, understand Russia is now an adversary and it's going to remain an adversary. But it's only half a paradigm change because in Germany, you do not find more than a small minority of people who see Ukraine as part of us. They still see Ukraine as something over there that has to be understood in the context of Russia, uh, that Ukraine policy has to be understood in the context of Russian policy. And the idea of Ukraine joining NATO is a, a, a proposition that does not make sense to most people. It certainly doesn't make sense to Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who has been in some ways uh, phenomenally robust, even courageous in dealing with elements in his own party. But I think in the United States also, 
um, President Biden sees this as a very fanciful idea. Now, if you come to Poland or the Baltic states or Finland, and I think now Sweden, uh, I think they, these countries and maybe some other believe this problem cannot be solved until Ukraine becomes a full member of the Euro-Atlantic security system. That is that that is my my own view of this. It is not a view I held before the war. It is a view I hold uh, very firmly now. Now this is a this is a major difference, and some optimists in the United States say that in Was the Washington summit, all this will change and that and um, we will. Uh, we will take a giant step forward in this area. I am not, I am not sure of that. And again, of course, this depends on uh, where we are at that point. Um, yeah, we were hoping the Vilnius summit would be that moment, but now it's now it's apparently uh, a Washington summit. But um, Jeff, you wanted to say something, and then I wanted to bring us around to to pull it full circle. Yeah. So there's one other peace in the United States, too. And I don't think this plays quite the same way in Europe. Uh, and that's China. Uh, because to the extent we do have these strategic debates in the United States, to the extent we are focused on things like reviving the defense industrial base, a lot of it is done through the prism of the idea that the U.S. is going to find itself at some point in the future fighting a conflict with China or trying to deter a conflict with China. Now, that may well be true. I'm not enough of a China scholar to really have a view about whether or on what time frame a, a U.S.-China conflict is likely. But I think that as you try to make the case for why the war in Ukraine and the threat from Russia matters, so to get back to your question about messaging, Brian, I think this is part of the messaging challenge that all of us face, which is how do we get people to focus on this challenge this conflict that's happening now and that is very threatening to the idea of the world that we in the West have long adhered to when so much of where the political discussion seems to be is on this potential future challenge on the other side of the world. Right. Yeah, no, and actually this kind of brings us around to where I wanted to wrap up this segment and that is back to where I started, Zelensky's visit to the United States um, last week. Uh, President Zelensky, of course, was in the U.S. to attend the U.N. General Assembly. Um, then he came to Washington. Um, what, 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 what? His what? The Washington portion of his visit for me was notable for what didn't happen. Right? I mean, there was a meeting with the Senate. There was a meeting with President Biden. He sat in a cabinet meeting in the White House, uh, but he did not, and was not invited to address a session of Congress. And this was for political reasons and only political reasons. He met privately with Speaker McCarthy, but because of the 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 uh, pressure on McCarthy from his right flank, to put it charitably, um, we didn't see anything more than that. Um, I I came away from that 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 visit worried a little bit. I had previously been reciting the mantra that everything's fine. The area between the 20-yard lines and the football field are fine. Support for Ukraine is 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 over 60%. Um, we have some trouble on the far left and the far right, but that's 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 just 
That's just just isolated gadflies. Um, and if you put this up for a vote in either House of Congress, AT Ukraine, in the Senate or the House, it would pass overwhelmingly. Uh, but the rules of our Congress, you know, <laughs> restrict what can get to the floor, and that allows minorities to make a to to to, to throw a wrench in the works. I walked away from Zelensky's visit to the U.S. a little bit more concerned than I was before. Jeff, did you share that? Yeah, and I think the you see it too in the current debates about government funding and possibility of a continuing resolution mm -hmm. where. One of the big sticking points seems to be continued uh, appropriations for aid for Ukraine, um, that it seems like the only way we're going to get over this hurdle uh, is for uh, the, the administration to, to make some kind of concessions on this issue. So, again, this has become a kind of totemic issue in the internal political debates in the United States. And I think given Speaker McCarthy's political weakness and dependence on those on his right flank for staying in, in his chair, um, he's going to be forced to to kowtow to some of those demands. Yeah. James, how did this look from Europe? And also, I wanted to bring in, not to let Europe totally off the hook, Slovakia's got elections this weekend. Uh, they are on a razor's edge. Um, it is possible that Fico and his smear party, which is uh, opposed to hating Ukraine, could return to power in Slovakia. That would give Viktor Orban a partner in crime inside of Europe. Um, so just all of this together, James, uh, how do you how do you Look, do all of this? It is unfortunate that a critical stage of the war now coincides with a viciously embittered electoral contest in Poland and an electoral contest in the United States. And you mentioned in Slovakia. You mentioned Slovakia uh, as well, which might be gone. Uh, but the I think my frustration, um, and I was not surprised about the visit, my frustration, and I stand to be corrected, is that I, I have not heard President Biden or anyone else say in response to a lot of these uh, arguments against appropriating more funds to Ukraine, that support of Ukraine, American support of Ukraine, amounts to something between 3 and 5% of the U.S. defense budget. Yep. Estonia is spending 1.3% of its GDP supporting uh, Ukraine. And we're doing very well, thank you very much. I'm not saying the United States is doing very well, but could someone would suggest that this increment of money would address any of these other domestic priorities that people are talking about, <laughs> it just makes no sense. My frustration is that I have yet to hear, and I stand to be corrected, the this administration set out the strategic case um, without slogans, without moralistic language, uh, without sound bites about autocracy and democracy, the strategic case for supporting Ukraine and what that support has done. Uh, spelling out that the Ukraine has... Um, aided by us, uh, destroyed 50% of Russia's current combat power without a single U.S. soldier being killed. I mean, this is, from a, from a narrowly self-interested American point of view, this is a stunning accomplishment compared to other conflicts that the United States has been involved in over the past 
20 years that I have not heard anyone spell out that it is a no-brainer to suppose that if the United States proves after everything it has done, unwilling and incapable of standing up to Russia and defeating it, that the Chinese will not for a moment right. seriously expect that we are going to be um, willing and able to stand up to them. These points need to be spelled out to the American public. They're not, they might be ignorant, but they're not stupid. Yeah. Well, I'm not weighing I, in I, on that. I, I, I don't they're not all stupid. I know, I know we have listeners in the U.S. foreign policy establishment, so I hope all are listening to James's wise words and, and heeding them. That's a great way to segue, uh, because in a few moments we will continue our discussion and shift our geographic focus a bit from Ukraine to the South Caucasus and look at the fallout from Azerbaijan's capture of Nagorno-Karabakh, Russia's inability or unwillingness to come to Armenia's defense, and what that all means for the security situation in that restive region. I'd like to remind you that you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington's historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is the one and only Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. And also joining us from across the Atlantic, from the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn, is the one and only James Sher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book, Our Diplomacy and Soft Version, Russia's Influence Abroad. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the website formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Threads and at Blue Sky at Power Vertical. Um, and that's uh, all the places you can follow us. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин нас никто не слушал. Привет. Это Навальный. Я уже свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности. First, how do you explain Russia's inaction? Is it just a lack of capacity? Or as some Armenians have suggested, is this an operation to undermine Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan, whom the Russians are known to despise? Yeah, I think it's more the former than the latter. Um, it's primarily, excuse me, that 
Russia has uh, pulled some of its capabilities out of the South Caucasus to deal with uh, the, the conflict in Ukraine, which reinforces a point that James was making in the, the previous segment about how Russia has been willing to sacrifice its equities in so many uh, other areas uh, in pursuit of victory in Ukraine. And I would include the South Caucasus uh, in those equities. Um, the forces that Russia had deployed uh, as peacekeepers were relatively small in number, We're talking about 2,000 people. Uh, they had largely stood aside ever since the beginning of the Azerbaijani blockade of the, the Lachin Corridor, the road connecting uh, Nagorno-Karabakh to, to Armenia um, that started last year. Uh, so it was pretty clear for, for several months that um, the Russian peacekeepers were uh, adopting a, a relatively hands-off approach. Um, and I think we saw the kind of gradual buildup of, of pressure on the Azerbaijani side uh, with first the blockade by so-called environmental activists, then progressing to more of a military blockade. And I imagine that much of that was predicated on testing the Russian response um, and seeing that Russia was not going to divert resources from Ukraine uh, or otherwise reinforce its very limited presence in the region, uh, giving Baku... Um, uh, the incentive or the belief that it could go ahead with a, a more comprehensive uh, military assault and, and get away with it. At the same time, I mean, you're right that Russia has very little love lost for, for Pashinyan. Um, but I was talking, you know, with a, a very well-connected Armenian uh, analyst the other day who made the point that there isn't really a viable pro-Russian uh, opposition in Armenia right now, that there's very little prospect, no matter what happens, no matter the scale of the protests that have broken out in uh, Yerevan since the, the fall of Nagorno-Karabakh, that Pashinyan will be replaced. And that if he is replaced, it's not going to be with anybody who's more tractable to Russian influence. Uh, so that seems to be a very secondary consideration. Right. So, I mean, I guess the big question is, was was this just Russian passive acquiescence or was it um, active, um, active support, uh, active encouragement of of Azerbaijan here? Russia's relations with Azerbaijan are also quite complex. James, you in the first half, again, painted this very, very, very dark picture of where Russia is uh, at the moment. How does this fit into that picture? Um, I think, as Jeff correctly pointed out, it, it kind of re reinforces your point that Russia is willing to sacrifice other strategic and tactical uh, goals for the, the 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 goal of winning in Ukraine. But at the same time, doesn't this also show Russia's weakness? Well, I defer to Jeff's expertise in in this matter, um, though I have to say my own instinctive reaction to what occurred. Was exactly was very similar to the uh, assessment that he just provided. I would just add one point and raise one question. The one point is the Russians are slow to change their strategic view of things. And when they look at Armenia, there's an old Russian saying, which a former Russian special envoy actually uh, quoted. In um, many years ago in Yerevan, uh, to a collegium of uh, the top diplomats and security people. And the old axiom is Armenia can either live with Russia or not at all. And so the question the Russians ask is well, they're unhappy with us. Let them be unhappy. 
where are they going to go? Uh, who are they going to talk to? Who is going to provide a counterpoise? It's so fundamentally different from Ukraine from that point of view, Belarus for that matter. So it, it, we're to some extent looking at the tyranny of geography here from, from my perspective. Uh, and it's a miserable situation. Now, my question is this. Where was Turkey? Where is Turkey in all of this? What role, if any, has Turkey played in it with Azerbaijan or, or none at all? How does Turkey respond to this? Um, Turkey is very sensitive for a host of obvious reasons to the dynamics of power in the Caucasus and particularly to... Um, Russia's capacity and its ability and willingness to use that capacity. So that is just a that is a question I don't have I don't even have a hypothesis about it except that I know that they have uh, they have been watching and I suspect of all the key players Turkey has been the least surprised of anyone. Well, the most knowledgeable of that would be happen to happens to be sitting here with us since Jeff uh, literally wrote a book partially about this. Jeff, how do you see Turkey's role here? Yeah. So I think for Russia, among others, Turkey's role supporting and sustaining Azerbaijan's offensive in 2020 came as a bit of a shock. I don't think there was much appreciation in Moscow, in the West, in Yerevan, uh, of the extent to which Turkish military support had facilitated Azerbaijan's military rise. Uh, which completely upended the balance of power between Baku and Yerevan that had prevailed since since the 1990s. That said, since the 2020 conflict, Turkey has been again uh, angling to negotiate uh, normalization of relations with Armenia, um, which is very intimately connected with Azerbaijan's normalization with Armenia, which was also being discussed on separate diplomatic tracks. Um, for that reason, I heard from people I talked to in Turkey that Ankara's approach in the last few months has been trying to restrain Azerbaijan. Mm -hmm. They wanted to, they believed that Azerbaijan could get most of what they wanted as far as restoration of control over Nagorno-Karabakh through essentially peaceful means and that they didn't need to risk, uh, military action. Um, and that would be consistent with what we've seen from President Erdogan since his reelection, of trying to uh, maybe not quite go back to the old no problems with neighbors policy that was pursued in the in the mid 2000s, but to tamp down some of the the regional conflicts that he had been stoking in, in recent years. That said, uh, once the Azerbaijani offensive against Nagorno-Karabakh had occurred, uh, Turkey was quick to embrace it. Um, President Erdogan traveled to uh, Nakhchivan which is the Azerbaijani exclave um, that uh, borders Turkey and that part of the Azerbaijan-Armenia struggle has been over a road connecting Nakhchivan to, to Azerbaijan proper. And so in showing up in Nakhchivan uh, in the aftermath of, of the fall of Nagorno-Karabakh, Erdogan was essentially blessing it uh, and blessing uh, President Aliyev's aspiration to connect Nakhchivan uh, through Armenian territory to uh, Azerbaijan. So it appears that Turkey has decided to make the best of the situation. Um, I think there's a recognition that um, 
Azerbaijan actually has a lot of leverage over Turkey for both strategic reasons as well as economic reasons. Um, and that that's actually a problem, uh, that Turkey would like to sort of shift the polarity of that relationship, which is the big country, the big brother, uh, you would think it would be able to do, but it actually uh, finds itself constrained in, in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the big question now uh, is, does Azerbaijan have further uh, territorial ambitions against Armenia? Uh, and if so, what is Turkey's position on that going to be? Um, Nagorno Karabakh is a devilishly complicated issue, but there is no disagreement really that under international law, it was part of Azerbaijani territory. And right. Prime Minister Pashinyan acknowledged that. And he said he was willing to acknowledge that preemptively, which is one reason why this offensive seemed unnecessary. Now, though, the other areas that are being uh, world over that are being talked about are on undisputed Armenian territory. And Azerbaijan is making irredentist claims against them. Um, whether or not Turkey will step in to restrain Azerbaijan or will attempt to restrain Azerbaijan from advancing those claims and whether it will be successful in doing so, I think is is a, a big question now. And whether Russia, which would be treaty obligation, it, it would, there would be a treaty obligation if Armenian territory itself were threatened. Um, that would that would raise questions of the Russians. James, you wanted to jump in, and I had something I wanted yeah. to come back after. But, uh... Yeah, Let, let's recycle back to the earlier set of issues, because we are talking uh, about Turkey, and we're talking inevitably about the Black Sea. Um, the Turks understand Russia is in a weakened position, but they're handling this, I think, very carefully, very judiciously. Now, the Ukrainians also, um, and this is this is the one encouraging factor of late. Um, Ukrainian capabilities have been clearing the Western Black Sea of a lot of Russia's naval presence and assets, and that has given them the confidence now to establish a grain corridor. And they have started this on a trial basis and they are expanding it. Um, NATO is conducting uh, visible surveillance over uh, all of this at the same time. Um, The Ukrainians are making the gamble of their own that the Russians are not going to sink a vessel But if they did, I am quite confident that the Ukrainians would hope that this would trigger direct Western intervention against Russia, which has been engaged in the most flagrant way in fundamental violations of international law in the Black Sea. Uh, Turkey does not want to see a conflict there. that is one reason why I think it is, and because it was worried about the possibility of one, I think this is one reason that might be restraining them slightly in the South Caucasus. The Turks have a lot on their plate, a lot to worry about mm. at the moment. So they, I think they're going to get, I'd be interested in Jeff's thoughts on yeah, I'd be interested in Jeff's thoughts on two things. One, what James is suggesting here 
that this uh, this 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 uh, the taking of Nagorno-Karabakh and the South Caucasus combined with where the Ukrainian war is right now could lead to a a a a, a destabilization of the South Caucasus region in general and the Black Sea region in general. Mm-hmm. On number one, the other thing that's on my mind is: is there a window of opportunity for the West right now in Armenia, despite? what James so eloquently called the tyranny of geography. Um, If this normalization with Turkey proceeds, and we've been down this road before, we all remember 2009 and the the ping-pong diplomacy and all of that. Um, It was a football diplomacy. I'm sorry, ping-pong was the U.S. and China. Football (laughs) diplomacy, I I stand corrected. Um, But is is there a window of opportunity for the West with Armenia? And is that contingent on a normalization with Turkey? Yeah. Uh, on the question of destabilization, um, I, I do think that the Caucasus is uh, volatile right now. Um, there's a humanitarian crisis, a mass exodus of ethnic Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, the numbers I saw this morning were about 60,000 people uh, had streamed across the, the border into Armenia in the last couple of days, uh, which is about half the region's population, um, presumably more uh, are going to continue. Um, those people will have to be settled and housed and, and fed and, and dealt with. Um, there's the continuing concern about, uh, further Azerbaijani territorial ambitions, uh, in this corridor to, to Dach Javan. Uh, and of course we haven't talked about Georgia. We've, we've spoken about Georgia and other power vertical episodes. Um, but that is also a volatile place. Um, so I, I think that the South Caucasus in particular is going through a period of, of uh, some upheaval. Um, the tyranny of geography that Armenia faces is is real. Uh, in the, the run-up to this latest crisis, uh, Armenia was making a big attempt uh, to gain Western support uh, out of a recognition that Russia was not likely to follow through on its obligations. Um, and a recognition that uh, um, Pashinyan did not have a lot of, of uh, cards uh, when it came to, to dealing with Moscow. But the problem was always that there was not much that the West could do for strategic and geographic reasons. Um, but if you bring Turkey in... Right. And, it's, you know, I was going to say, and also because Russia despite everything else, still has uh, a troop presence in Armenia. There's the peacekeepers, but there's also a, a permanent Russian military presence right. there. Uh, so it's not like, you know, the, we're going to dispatch the, the 102nd Airborne there. Um, that w- is why I think Armenia has put so much emphasis on this normalization process. Remember, since the first Nagorno-Karabakh war in the 90s, Armenia's borders with both Azerbaijan and Turkey have been effectively closed. Um, they were briefly opened uh, with Turkey uh, following the the devastating earthquakes that hit Turkey last year, um, that, where there was a, an attempt to, to move uh, humanitarian assistance across the border. And that was actually a kind of proof of concept that they can do this and that some of the procedures are being put in place. Preparations are being made for this eventual normalization. If that happens... Uh, and some of these east-west transit corridors that are being built uh, can actually go across Armenian territory, that would be a huge boon uh, for Armenia, which remains a, a comparatively poor state 
uh, a, a landlocked, rather isolated state. Uh, it could be problematic for other countries in the region, uh, including Georgia, uh, including Iran. Um, but I do think it would be good for Armenia, and I think it would create uh, windows of opportunity for the West to have more of an especially economic presence, um, but also potentially uh, some kind of, of greater strategic cooperation uh, with Armenia. Um, that is still very much up in the air. Um, whether they'll be able to get this normalization passed remains uh, very much in question. Mm -hmm. And even if they do, similar to the point James is making about Ukraine, given the volatility, how are you going to attract private investment uh, to this region if there's a risk of another regional war breaking out, if there is this kind of political uncertainty? And again, we haven't talked really about the the big neighbors you know, and their own rivalries. So you've got Turkey, you've also got Russia and Iran. Right, right. And, and Pashinyan was certainly showing his uh, desire to open up to the West. I mean, he is, his wife visited Ukraine. He showed a willingness to sign the Rome statute, mm -hmm. um, which would have made Armenia part of the International Criminal Court, meaning Putin would have to be arrested if he were on Armenian territory. Mm -hmm. um, and there were there were military exercises with, with the um, with 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 the Americans. Um, James, you 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 wanted to jump yeah, in. I, I um um I was just again trying to unify mm -hmm. the teachers we've been talking about. Um, so uh, maybe what I have to say is, is is premature. I was just anticipating your guillotine. I think when it comes to the big war, which is the the Russia's war in Ukraine, the this has been we shouldn't forget this has been from the beginning a war of surprises. Most people's predictions have gone wrong. Uh, we haven't even discussed another issue, and I'm not proposing we discuss it now. Which is what the whole, the two Prigozhin episodes have revealed about the realities of power mm. in Russia. Um, there are on many fronts room for real surprises, um, and we shouldn't be too settled in our predictions, whether they are dark predictions or hopeful predictions about what is going to happen. Um, I'd be very surprised if we come back in a year's time with with analyses that are very close to those we have provided uh, this evening. Mm. Yeah, well, that that's a a grand. You're you're, you're right, James. The guillotine is coming because I was looking uh, at the clock. Uh, sorry, was that? Man, that's fine. I, that was your 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 remarks were actually a great way to wrap the whole thing up. Unless Jeff had some final thoughts before we close out. Well, just really quickly, that we're talking about different timelines. There's the timeline of the Ukrainian counteroffensive and the seasons changing. There's the timeline of the American political debate and what happens with our elections. And there's the internal timeline in Russia, too. Um, you know, we talked about the Prigozhin episode uh, at some point on this podcast and how it's significant of the fragility in a lot of ways of the Russian political system. Now, something can be fragile and still last for a long time. You know, mm -hmm. you can have a hundred-year-old vases on your shelf, but it doesn't take a lot for those to shatter if the pressure is applied in the right way. And I think that is worth keeping in mind uh, about Russia. The problem is it's very unpredictable when or on which timeline it's going to happen. 
Right. Oh, that is that is also a great way to close out our discussion. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to Our Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood has been the one and only Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add once again that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Joining us from across the Atlantic, from the magical Estonian capital of Tallinn, has been the one and only James Sher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russian Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book, Hard Diplomacy, Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Thank you both for an enlightening and lively discussion and for making us all a lot smarter. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell, who handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the website, formerly known as the Twitter, at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Blue Sky and on threads at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 